All right, good morning, church. You guys out there? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, every year we set aside a few Sundays. We call them stewardship Sundays where we talk about um, being stewards of what God has given us. And so today and the next two Sundays, we're going to talk about stewardship. Now, last night at my house, my daughter actually asked, Dad, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, we're, we're going to be doing something on stewardship. And she said, what is stewardship? And my wife kind of just jumped right in. And she said, stewardship is taking care of the things in this world that God has given to us. And I was like, whoa, I took a pen and I write that down. And that was really good. You know, she, she had a way of explaining it. It was simple to me. It's all encompassing. I was like, and I remember thinking, I don't even know if I could add anything more to that. Stewardship, taking care of the things in this world that God gives us. <laughs> but really, I mean, that's what it is. There's not a lot you have to add into that, although we are going to dig a little more. But we're, this is a great section. I have not preached this particular passage before in any of our stewardship uh, series in the 10 years that I've been preaching. So I'm excited to, to have a new passage. And this passage, it's a moment where there's going to be a transfer of wealth. King David to his son Solomon. Last night I was Googling, I was like, you know, greatest transfers of wealth from, you know, uh, one person to another and all these things come up. But, the, but this is one thing that I found. The greatest transfer of wealth, perhaps ever in the history of recorded man, is happening right now. And it's between two generations, the boomer generation to the millennial generation. As the boomer generation ages and they begin to pass away, they are passing on to the next generation the wealth that they have accumulated through a lifetime of building. You know, so uh, that's going on right now. And what there's a lot of interesting things being said about that, uh, which you can look up if you want. Some are like some of the boomers are holding back. They don't know if they want to give everything. Some of the millennials, they feel like... Um, uh, it, maybe it's not enough what they're being given. There's all these interesting things, which I won't get into. But the trans this transition, it's the background of what we're looking at today, a wealth transfer that's on the horizon. David is at the end. He's getting towards the end of his life and his reign. And his son Solomon is going to take over. And in this passage, I'm going to read to you right now, he is, he is gathered together an assembly. And he's, he's speaking to them. And he's, he's presenting something. And that's what we're going to look at today. I've titled the series, Givers in the Bible. The next two Sundays of today, we're looking at Givers in the Bible. And today, the specific one is the original giver. And we're going to look at that today. David's going to get at that. Let me go ahead and read the passage. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. says, Therefore, David... Blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding O Lord our God all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Father, I just pray as we study this today that you will shape something in the hearts of all those who are sitting here about who you are, the original giver, and what that means to us in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said before, David has gathered this group together and you just heard what he has said to them. And the last verse I read gave you a little bit of a clue because he says we've, we've collected all of this for a purpose, and the purpose is to build a house. Now, if you know your history in the Bible, God's people were in Egypt, they came out of Egypt, and they wandered through the desert on their way to the promised land. And during that time, as they went through the desert, they had something called the tabernacle, and that was the dwelling place of God, but it essentially was a, a big tent. And because they were always moving, God's house had to be mobile. And so they would uh, set up the tent. They would set up the tabernacle and then people could worship. But then when it was time to move, they had to take it all down and then we would move along and they would set it up again. Well, now they, they're in the promised land. There's this whole series of the Bible where it, it covers how they conquered the land and it basically be, they become settled as a nation there in the promised land. And David had reached a point where he had said, we need a proper house for God. This, the, the God of the universe should have something better than a tent. And it was his heart's desire. And he wanted to give that gift to God. I want to make you a house that is worthy of who you are. And yet God's response came back to him. I want to read it to you. It wasn't in the section I gave you, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 8, God gave David his answer. You want to build me a house? You, David, have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because... You have shed so much blood before me on the earth. I'm going to come back to a thought about that. But right here in this moment, what you can see is God said, it's not for you to build me a house. And the reason was because of what he had done with his life and what was attached to him, his reputation. His reputation was, was a man of war. He shed much blood. And God's house was to be a house of peace and to be a house of of a sanctuary for people to come and connect with God. He didn't want that attachment. You, David, can't build me a house. Now, David is going to have to pass this on to his son. But not only will he give the job to Solomon, but he is collecting the means for him to do it. And this is where our study picks up as David has gathered this assembly for a dedication of the temple project. You know, a, a groundbreaking type of scene. We need to build a house for God. I'm not going to do it. Solomon, it's going to be you when you take over. But we've collected this money for the project, so you should be good to go. And that's where we pick up. And David has said what I read to you. 
And so now we're going to get three points out of what David said. There's the background, and here's the first point. The first point is that worship is at the heart of giving. Again, in verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. And you can see as he begins his um, presentation that he's, there's, at the heart of David is, I want to bless God. I want to give him something that is worthy for who he is. And at the very heart of giving is worship. And so the points underneath this, and here's how I kind of build this, is, is here's the first thought, is that giving may convey what place in the heart the receiver has. In other words, my gift to you says something about your place in my heart. What I give and the fact that I chose to give something to you. And that is the heart of David. Now, you can relate to this because we just went through the Christmas season and you, I imagine most of you in here gave a gift to someone. And how did you choose that? How did you choose who to give a gift to and who not to give a gift to? Now, if you were a mega millionaire, you could send a gift to about everybody you might want to, at least something. You know, I'm not that. So we had to decide. I've got lots of cousins, first, second, third cousins, many aunts and uncles, lots of relatives, but I did not send a gift to all of them. And sometimes it's kind of hard. You sit, I sit with my wife and I'm like, should we give them a gift? But if you give them a gift, then we also have to give a gift to them. You know, it's like you got a bunch of siblings. I have siblings. You can't give a gift to one sibling and not the others, you know? And so you're making decisions about who to give a gift to. You know who's at the top of, of my list? It's always my own immediate family. I am not going to send a gift to my first, second, third cousins who live in the, in the mountains of, of, of Kentucky and not give them to my own kids that live in my house, right? My kids have a little more importance. It says something about who they are to me. I want to give them a gift. I make that choice. And then also maybe what you give. Even within my own immediate family, generally speaking, the best gift I usually try to give is to my wife. Because sorry, kids, she, she outranks you in my heart. She does, you know? And, and so so. Gift giving says something about, when we give, it says something about who the person is in our heart. And it's no different when it comes to our community and our relationship with God. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus connects this dot. You want to know what a person really cares about, you follow the trail of evidence of the treasures that they have. You might be somebody who loves, you're a guy who loves the outdoors, and you got all kinds of outdoor stuff, whether it's for hiking or water sports, or, or, but you buy stuff because you like it. You're into diving. You buy all the best diving gear. The treasure shows what it is about your life that you really like. And Jesus is the one that says this. Connect the dot. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And, there, and, and fundamentally, one of the reasons we do the stewardship sermons every year is to come back to a reminder of that. Where is your treasure? If you were a person, if we follow the dots, and there's nothing that you have given that has eternal purpose, what does it say about what is most valuable to you in your life? Where your treasure is shows rankings within your heart. Not only that, but public giving may expand 
the worship and honor to the person you're giving the gift to. It's one thing to give it to them. I mean, I, 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 I'm just telling you, I doubt this is what played out in your homes at Christmas. You know, especially if you're a family with kids, you know, if people come together, you gather together, we're going to give presents. You get all the presents out from under the tree. And what happens? Each person takes their gifts and they go back to the room and shut the door and individually, all by themselves in silence, secluded, opens the gifts. No. We open the gifts right there where everybody can see. It brings other people into that gift-giving experience. And it shows, you know, when all my kids open the presents and they go, what did you get, mom? Whoa, wow, you know, that's great. It, it, it brings them into that experience. There's something about publicly, too, when we give the gifts, that it's, it's drawing others into that. And David, in his attempt to say very publicly, we got to build a better house for God. And then he, he's going to raise the money. He's going to draw all the people into it. And they're drawn into this gift-giving experience. And so the very first point that I make is worship is at the heart of giving. Now, at the end of each of these points, I've got an implication. Something that's implied within the point I'm giving you. And here's the first one. These are kind of applicational. Our representation of him affects what we can give him. Now, David was, was a man of war. And you know his life, he caught in, in adultery and murder to cover it up. And there's a way in which the decisions he made, in fact, as a king, he's a steward. I have given you a kingdom. How did you use, how did you steward what God gave you? Well, sometimes you used it for personal gain. Sometimes you used your power to cover up sin. Sometimes you used your power to lead others to, you allowed murder. You intentionally murdered. And there's a way in which the way he stewarded took away the opportunity for him to give the one thing he really wanted to give God. And so built into this, what you need to see is stewardship matters because it can affect ministry. It can affect then your ability to be a giver and to give back to God. Good stewards, this is a biblical principle. If you're faithful with a little, God says, I'll give you more. And if you have more, you have the ability then to minister more and to give more. And so built into this, it's an implication. David, you can't build the house. Why? Because of the decisions you made as a steward. And if you're a good steward, you're able to give more the doors are open more. And like with David, maybe the very thing that you really care about doing. So that's the first implicational point, you know, because how we live our life is attached to then the ministry and the giving that we do. And you're not going to see this. There's a disconnect. Man of war and murder builds a piece of house. I mean, it's like you're driving down the road and you see, hey, somebody built a building. What, what is that? It says, uh, uh, ministry to the Jews built by Adolf Hitler. That doesn't make sense. That's an oxymoron. You know, people who have reputations like this, uh, someone who's a womanizer, well, don't build a house for, for a shelter to women. You know, there's, there's a disconnect. How you choose to steward what God has given you, everything in your life, opens the doors and shuts the doors for ministry and giving opportunities. 
Now, number two, second point, God already has everything. And every year on stewardship, this, is, uh, this point is made, but in all the years I've been here, I, I, I was putting this together. I think this is the strongest this point's ever been drawn out of the biblical text. Let me read to you what David says here. Starting in verse 11, David says, Yours, O Lord, <clears throat> is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you for our God and praise your glorious name. Now what you see in this point, this in one sense, this verse is conveying status, you know, like in the way that it, on a hu totally human worldly level, I could throw a name out and you would associate status with that person. You know, if I say Jeff Bezos, you go, oh, that, that's a guy with a lot of money. You know, Elon Musk, oh, richest guy perhaps in the world, right? And you think about, just like he says, God, and here's the list of everything he has. Bezos, Musk, here's a list of everything they have. And the, the list of what they have communicates to you the status of who they are, right? And David's doing that. He does not want to leave to the imagination how big God is. And the list is there. The point is, God has everything. So the subpoints are God has. The first one, what does he have? Greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty. In each one of those, I could spend five minutes talking to you about them. Men build their lives to achieve the things he has on the list. Greatness. I'm going to, to live my life in a way to be good at things so that people say he's great. He's great at that, right? But with God, it's there from the beginning. Greatness is from the beginning. Power, you may work in such a way to climb the ladders corporately or within the military to achieve authority, to have greater power. God already has it from the beginning. Victory, I'm going to try to build a resume of wins so that I, the word victory is attached to who I am. God already has victory. It's built within who he is, his character, majesty. And he's giving you this list. And, in the, and right there in the middle of everything I read. So you have greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty. And then there's this word, for. It's like because, the reason why. So God has these things, greatness and power. Why? He has them because what he says next, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Heavens and earth. Heavens. In the Bible, there are three heavens. The first heavens is the blue sky that we can see. The second heaven is outer space. And the third heaven is where he dwells. Often when we say heaven and hell, that's the context. It's the throne room of God, the clouds, the golden city. 
Those are the three heavens. And he says, you know what? In all the heavens and all the earth, every inch of the entire universe, just so you, you think there's somewhere you can go where victory does not exist, where power does not exist, where majesty, majesty does not exist for him. I'm going to cover it all so you know he has it because he made it all. He exists in all those spaces. And because of that, he goes on to say, God has then, and I use the word ownership, because it says, yours is the kingdom. That is a huge expanse that he describes, but you know what? It's not chaos. It's a kingdom. It's an organized kingdom. There's a king on the throne. There's a hierarchy. And yes, the universe, there's aspects where you say it's in rebellion to that kingdom and that king. But he does not fall off his throne. He does not lose power. He does not lose majesty. He still has those things. The whole span of the universe, things that you have never seen or heard. I remember one sermon talking about this star that exists so far out there you can barely see it. And for all its existence, it, it, it's there with this, it's giving off this this vibrating noise, and you can actually, now they've recorded it, you can go online and hear it, and it's something like, it's something like, something like that. It's like it's playing a song out there in space, some rhythmic beat. It's like, why is it there? God, you put it there. We can hardly see it. We can't even hear it. Yeah, it's there for Him. The universe is His. Kingdom shows ownership. It uses the word head. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as what? The foot? The head of all things. It's talking about being an owner and a ruler of everything. And then I use this word to confer, like to give conference to something, because he goes on to say, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So things like riches and honor, titles, power, might, strength, where do they come from? They come from Him. Just think about that. Because we often think of just the possessions. That's what makes a man rich, but you know what else comes from Him? titles. And I was thinking about as I'm putting this together, I remember when one time in particular, I was walking across the stage to get a degree. Now, when you get a degree, you go and you study for a number of years and they tell you these are all the things you got to pass. And if you pass them, then we're going to give to you this degree, this title. And they use this kind of language at a graduation. We, the academic institution, see that you've fulfilled, basically you've jumped through all the hoops that we've told you that you have to jump through. And we confer upon you the degree of fill in the blank. We give you this title of doctor. We give you this title of master. People confer honor and titles. And here... David says that ultimately really comes from God. He owns all the titles. He owns all the honor and the degrees. And if you have any, whatever rank you have, whatever position you have, ultimately it has come from Him. 
power, might. If you feel weak and you say, Lord, I need to be strengthened, it says it comes from his hand. And I think what David is trying to show you here is do not leave any inch of space in the entire universe. You need to understand he owns it all. Which leads me to the implicational point that you can apply to yourself. You don't really own anything. That's why we use the word steward. You might have on a piece of paper that says title to a car and your name's there and it's filed in an envelope over at a building called DMV that gives you right and ownership to that car, but ultimately God owns it. He's the owner of everything. David is trying to cover that. Now, steward is such a great term to use because a steward is not the owner. A steward is, I've been given something from the owner and now I'm to watch over it, to use it, to utilize it, to, to make it better. That's what a steward is. And that's what ultimately we are. There is only one owner and all of us are stewards. So that leads me to the last point, which is this. God gave to us first. That's why I use the title, the original giver. We're going to look at givers in the Bible over these few Sundays, and the best to start with is God. He is the first, the original giver. And you get this from what David is saying. Look what he says here in verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. <laughs> did, you did you hear what he said? How can we really give to you? Because you're the owner of it all. And he says there, Basically, anything we give to you comes out of your own. Now, this should have a lot of power for all of us that live in Guam because there's a phrase in there that I never heard till I came to Guam, and it's your own. We don't talk like that in the States. You know, when I came here and, and somebody said, that's your own, I went, what do you mean, your own? What, what is that? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but it sounds like bad, you know, English skills, you know, not to be insulting, but that's not how we talk. I've never talked like that. And they come here and people are always like, that's your own. That's his own. That's your own. And, but I guess David had a little bit of Chamorro in him. I don't know, or Guamanian, because he's using it here. He's saying, it's your own. He's like, look, all things come from you and of your own have we given you. So it's this interesting thought, right? It's like, I want to give you a gift, but really what I'm giving you is yours anyways, right? Now, I've used this illustration a couple years ago at Christmas. You know, we, when our kids were growing up, I want so much for my kids to not just think about Christmas as a time of receiving. And you know, kids, it's hard. For kids, it's like, here's my list of the gifts that I would like. They are totally preoccupied with self and what they can get at Christmas time. But I want them to think about what are you going to give, right? But how can they do that when they're six, seven, eight, nine, and they don't really have an income? I mean, there might be like an allowance that they get, but I want them to really 
think about and enjoy. Like, like I said, like people come together and, and they're giving a gift and they're, they're, excited, they're as excited as much about seeing someone open the gift that they got for them than they are about getting something. And so what we did was I said, let's give the kids some money. Let's do like an exchange between the siblings. They draw a name and then we give them money. And so as young kids, we, there was one night we'd go off to the stores and the malls and they would go buy a present for whoever's name that they had drawn. And it, it began to grow within the family, you know, this love for giving gifts. I want them to love to give gifts, not just be receivers. And it's been fun to see that grow over the years. You know, now I have some older kids who have income outside of our family, and it's fun to see what they might do and give gifts. Sometimes they give some really good gifts. But the, the whole thought is exactly what David is saying. It's my money, and I gave it to you, child. Go get a gift and give it to somebody, because I want to see in their heart the love for giving gifts. God is a gift giver, and if we are truly becoming more like Christ, we will be people who love to give. And we've seen this grow over time, but, you know, it's, it's made for lots of fun because you never know what a kid's going to buy. And, and, it, and then it's like, if you give them $20 and they go to the store, maybe they only spent 10 on a gift and they saw something else they liked. I don't know, you know, how, how they spent their money. But the reality is they're a steward in that moment. They're a steward of what? They're giving. Now, you know, this year, my 12-year-old uh, daughter, we went to Ross, and we were putting stuff in the car. We're going to buy some things. I went up there to check out, and I'm buying something. And she had decided she wanted to give a gift, and she put it in there underneath stuff. And as we rang it up, it was like, wait a minute, how'd that get in there? And it ended up under the tree. And then I'm like, I kind of really gave that gift, but you know. But I love that she had the heart to give. And then we began to draw other people in. We went and did this where we went to the mall. And for the first time, we took some other kids with our kids. And the Graves kids went. And there's this funny, famous story between our families where Nathaniel went and Sienna, and they're walking around. They want to get a gift for mom and dad. And it was like, yeah, get a gift for mom and dad. And Sienna, she was like, well, should I get him this, this plant? And she's like, you know, this and that. And she was, saying, she was really into giving, the, thinking about it. And Nathaniel, like all of us guys, went up and I'm getting this. What is it? It's an, a refrigerator magnet of a fried egg. And I remember going, you can, who's that for? My dad. Does, your, like, does he have some fetish about magnets on fridges I don't know about? Like, what is with the, the egg magnet, you know? I don't know. I just thought he would like it, you know? And I remember asking Andrew. He opened it up. He's like, oh, okay, you know? But like, just a few weeks ago, we were over at their house, and I was like, where's the egg magnet, you know? It's still there. You know, what are we really driving at? God is the owner of everything. And the whole thing about, I want to give to you because I want you to become a giver. That's what I'm trying to build in my kids. And you know what? It's here in the story. David cares about that. I can't give God the thing I really want to get. I want to I pass it on to my son. I, I want my son to be a giver. And so here's what we see in this. In the next verse, we see the great transition of stewards throughout God's history. In verse 15, David says, For we are strangers before you and sojourners 
as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. And he's contrasting himself with God. God, eternally alive, owner of everything. By contrast, we're sojourners. We're these brief travelers on earth. And yet at the very heart of what he's trying to do is be a giver, give good gifts, and, and bring it out of my son so that my son can be a good giver and my son can give you the thing that I wanted to. And there's, there's a part of this whole thing where I say, how are you building that into your family, dad? How are you going to build that into your family, mom? Where you think through intentionally about creating within your own family a generational desire to be givers to God. And our world needs it. Even as I talk to pastors today, one pastor was telling me, my generation, we planted this church, we built this building, we're going to pay it off in about two years, and it's going to be this great triumph that we are leaving, a legacy that we're being behind. But I'm going to tell you, pastor, I'm kind of worried about the, the generation underneath us because they don't give like our generation did. And there's this importance that the mature generation needs to be intentional about building these kinds of things into the next generation so that God can continue to work in the ways that He is. The reason why we put missionaries up here is to show you how we want to be good stewards, how we want to share the gospel on Guam, but there's a certain percentage of the whole budget of baby that always goes to mission so that somewhere else in the world we're planting churches, we're putting missionaries there, to reach people for Jesus Christ because that has eternal value. The great transition of stewards in God's history, that's what we're seeing. David to Solomon. And you go over here, David's leading in that example. Verse 3, David says, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And he goes on to talk about that. David had wealth. I've got my gold, I've got my silver, but I am giving to this project, Solomon, because it has value. And then I put here, this is the pattern that you see. Oh, Lord. Well, that's verse 16, but let me give you this first. The pattern would look like this. Original giver, God. And he gives to givers who give back to Him. That is the equation. An original giver who gives to stewards who are to be givers that they give back to Him. That is the cycle throughout all the Bible. And there's a way in which, and I'll, I'll, I'll get at this through, through the other messages, but it, it has to do with our faith as well. To have enough faith to give, to trust that God will continue to provide for you. And then He uses what we give. He uses what we give in two ways. I didn't say this in the first service, but the first, it's, you know, when you go to a bank and you, and you, and, and you get money from them, you have to give all of the money back plus interest. And it's like the opposite of how God works. God gives to us. But there's, there's, he waits. Well, how are you going to steward it? 
and we use it in a way and we, we give back to him. We're not paying, paying back like we are the bank. We're giving back to God because we're showing in our heart how much we have faith in you that you continue to provide. We're showing in our heart we're giving back because we care about eternal things. We're showing in our heart because you gave to us. We want to be givers. And we can never give back to you in the same way that you gave to us because you gave your son. He died for us so that we can have salvation. It's the greatest gift ever in the history that we know. And yet we're to be like him in a way to be givers like him. The original giver to givers who give back to him. Now the implication point that I want to make is there's this free will thing. Because this is what he goes on to say in verse 16. Oh Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, verse 17, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness, in the uprightness of my heart. I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. In fact, if I go backwards earlier where David said, I have gold and silver, right after that, David wrote, then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings. And throughout this whole text, there's this word free. Freedom, freely, and joyous. That's the kind of giver that God wants. It's something totally different than like obligation, like taxes. Taxes, they come, we have to pay. If we don't pay, they're going to come after us at some point. IRS can be knocking on our door. They take the money, what do they do? They build roads. They, build, they do stuff with the money. This is different. I don't have to give it. I come and I give freely and with joy for all the reasons that I have given. So that God can use it. So that my heart demonstrates how I feel about what He's done for me. There is this freedom aspect. And that's why David uses this word test. He says, I know my God that you test the heart. And that's when he goes on to say, I have freely offered. The people who are here are offering freely and joyously to you. Stewardship is a test of the heart. It's a test. It's a test to, to, to demonstrate our, our faith, to demonstrate where in our heart, just like the gifts I choose to give to my kids, but not to my second cousins, where in our heart is God's place? If you follow the line, you're going to see the treasure that's really there. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. We want to see that you treasure God, because that's where your heart will be. As we go through this series, we'll add into these things, but it's a great foundation to lay. Today, the original giver is God. He's given to us, and we can freely give. And that's how God raises us up. Thank you, Lord, for this um, story about David. Even the parts where we can see his heart, he loved you. He was a man after your own heart. And there's, in a sense, there's a lot of encouragement because there's a lot of bad things he did. Most of us, probably all of us in here, we're not as bad as him. We weren't murderers. 
most of us not adulterers, and yet he can still be described as a man after your own heart, to know that we can have a relationship with you no matter how far we might fall from you, and yet also to learn from his life. Sometimes not being a good steward of what you have given to us means we won't be able to minister in ways. We won't, we will, won't be able to give with a greater abundance because of the reputation of the bad decisions that we make. But we fall upon your grace, and we see that your plan was for Solomon to build that house, to build your house, and we learn from this passage. We see you are the original giver. You are the owner of all things, and that means we are only stewards. And stewardship is a test, just like any owner on earth. If they give possessions to a steward, they're, they're, they're going to keep them accountable. Are you a good steward? Is the owner going to be happy with how you steward the things that are given to you? And so I just pray, God, I always pray that you build in this church good stewards, people who, who love you, if we follow the, the evidence to where the treasure is, we see that we treasure you because we invest in eternal things. We invest in things that will last past this lifetime. I pray that you would also challenge us today as the, for the parents that are in here, the moms and dads, that they'd be thinking more intentionally about how to raise up another generation of givers. As David wrote, we're sojourners Yet history is filled with the great transition of one giving generation to the next, and we need to continue to build that in our Christian communities. We love you, Lord. I just pray over these next weeks that you would grow us a little bit, challenge us, and that we would ground ourselves in what your word is saying. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand up and worship together as we finish our service.